Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today we'll be exploring a classic GP presentation, a lump in the throat. The textbooks used to describe it as globus hystericus, but what is this common and often anxiety-provoking symptom usually caused by? We'll also be getting some tips for when patients, particularly children, are having trouble swallowing pills. I'm Tom Nolan, uh, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined, as usual, by uh, Navjoy. Hi, Navjoy. Hi, I'm Navjoy Lada, head of education at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Hi, and uh, Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And so I, I thought we should start today with a bit of an acknowledgement that we're we're giving you another podcast not about coronavirus, um, even as we head into November and December, where things in the UK at least are, are looking pretty grim again. Um, how have you been about it all, uh, Jenny and Navjoit? Are you, are you bearing up okay through, through the storm that's, that's continuing? Well, I feel like we're all just kind of tumbling forward in this kind of new normal and uh, just coping as best we can I, th- I think that um certainly life in primary care obviously it's changed drastically the kind of format of our consultations and there's a there's a kind of specter of covid it seems because you know we can't bring people in and often mm. you know you're having to justify doing that um are you well we do bring people in but we can't do it easily um and obviously people often lots of people calling up are worried about covid but actually the amount mm. of covid we're seeing or i'm seeing at least um in practice is not is not a huge amount there's a little bit of trying to you know help uh, people make decisions about whether or not to get tested and obviously a little bit of long covid as well but hmm. all the other things that we usually see are still out there yeah absolutely i feel like um we're getting all the usual demand that we see in this time of year plus um plus the extra demand from not really yeah. from people with you know acute covid needing um sort of admission but those with milder symptoms or you know the act of decisions people are having to make about testing and, and yeah so on. yeah it's difficult and then also I think the added pressure of uh, often the onward pathways that you would normally use are different yeah or sometimes yeah, not exactly. there as well so yeah there's definitely the COVID impact I think is being felt I think in primary care of course that's an obvious thing to say but perhaps actual clinically I'm not I'm not seeing so much yeah and Jenny in New Zealand you're just sort of basking in in it's like 20, 2019 where you are, I guess. <laughs> I mean, dare I say, yes, things are going very well. <laughs> I am in a little bubble here. Um, we have this week had, well, the week of the second to last week of October have had a couple community cases. But I don't know if you guys um, have heard of the same in other places, but some of these countries where... Um, there was an initial outbreak or spattering of cases, and then maybe another outbreak, maybe even gone through a lockdown or two, but used that time productively to build up a contact tracing system that um, is pretty aggressive, um, has meant that you can have a small number of cases that you quickly get under control. So um 
I think New Zealand's example has been a good one kind of globally. Um, but there are a handful of other countries that have done really well managing it. And, and um, sorry, I know the UK and obviously the US are um, not those countries. Yeah, I feel like you're just taunting us at this um, point, Jenny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're doing fine. I, I think, was be. it only a, mil- a million cases that haven't yeah. been um, contacted? <laughs> just that very specific point about using the time of lockdown mm. to build up a mm. test and trace system. I mean... We can only dream. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, stop stop rubbing it in, Jenny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're just too we're so just too po- sort of blinded by jealousy, I yeah, think, Jenny. Yeah, 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 we we can't think straight yeah. out about this. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think it. But going back to sort of our, our sort of day jobs and and how this all affects us, um, th- the reason we're we're going with these non-COVID topics on the podcast is that, yeah, I think we we have to more than ever be, I suppose. At, on our game i suppose and um and really you know know when we do need to refer urgently and really when we we don't need to and yeah, and, and sure. i think i'm finding in my sort of on-call appointments on the phone you know we're, we're sometimes hardly able to more than just scratch the surface of a problem and you know we're having to sort of wrap it up much much more quickly than than i used to um and so hence we're trying to go for some common so challenging um clinical problems that um, we can we can try to help with. I also think that even in New Zealand, um, people are struggling a lot with anxiety, um, whether mm. it's fear of going back into another lockdown, whether it's anxiety related to a lockdown, whether it's anxiety related to rising case numbers, what, you know, any number of circumstances, elections mm. could be causing anxiety right now. And um, I think it's not abnormal for anxiety to manifest in a number of different so-called physical symptoms that, you know, people, whether they're feeling fatigued or whether they're struggling to sleep or, you know, even perhaps struggling to swallow um, or struggling to breathe. These are all things that, you know, could very easily manifest as a result of anxiety. Yeah, exactly. And who, who hasn't had a bit of a lump in the throat at times this year? Um, and it, I think it doesn't take much to to latch onto that as you know. Oh, what's going on? Is this a you know? Is this a cancer? Is this is this something serious? Um, and that can quickly kind of spiral. I think that seems to be what happens for for some people um, into more anxiety. And I guess all of our usual. Um you know all the things that I would usually use to distract myself from myself like you know be going out going to work you know we're just spending a lot more time sort of in our heads and a lot of time mm. to kind of dwell on I don't know weird sensations in our body <laughs> yeah I think I think I think that's right um certainly seeing lots of people with, with these kind of mild symptoms which are, are just the body's natural noise i think is one way of thinking about it um but, but getting very worried about them yeah and um so i mean going to, to lump in the throat so moving forward onto, onto that a little bit more um i guess when i was at medical school uh this was something which you know you look it up and it's globus hystericus which uh i'm sure at the time i thought oh that's kind of a cool name <laughs> but uh it's not the best term is it <laughs> It's awful. I mean, so so our last episode was about personality disorders. And of course, like the classic example of mm. a sexist term or one of the classic examples of a sexist term being used as a medical diagnosis is histrionic personality disorder, right? Where, where people draw on this idea of women being hysterical 
um, that word referencing the uterus and then turning, you know, you get histrionic um, personality disorder. Um, and, and I think this is what you're alluding to with globus hystericus, right? Um, so, but, but I actually don't have a sense of the um, epidemiology. Is this something that mostly presents in women? It's not something that comes in every day, is it? You, you know, it's not like coughs and colds, but um, it's often enough that, you know, I, I don't know what's often in, in a full-time <laughs> GP, like a few times a year. Like, I, I think that's reasonably often. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd say. And um, it's hard because I've got that kind of recall bias. I probably can only remember the, the people for whom it was really incredibly distressing yeah. symptom. And, you, you know, you left um, either really worried that there was something really very serious going on yeah. or... Um, struggling to sort of shift the conversation away from um, the the possibility of a you know cancer or or, or something to, towards addressing the yeah the, the the distress and anxiety yeah it's so hard isn't it I mean my experience mm. um, a lot of my experiences from doing an ENT rotation as a GP trainee and where I think I saw you know similar uh, also biased but in a different way to seeing the people who uh, needed a referral and would get um, an, a nasendoscopy to visualise the throat. I can't remember a single time when I, I've ever found any kind of um, worrying pathology uh, mm. on doing that or on, on observing one of those. And then trying to, um, you know, how you manage those situations as a clinician where you feel you're trying to explain that, you know, there's nothing worrying there, which we have to do quite often that, you know, we haven't found anything worrying, but still the, the patient has got these kind of symptoms that are unpleasant for them. And you feel that you have to do something to try and help. And mm. often you, you feel mm. kind of quite helpless in that situation. So that's, um, mm. you know, that's the kind of predominant uh, feeling I have when I think about lump yeah. in the throat is this sense that, oh, I should do something, but I don't know what that is. Yeah. So we're, we're about to hear from an author of um, an article that's coming out in the BMJ very soon uh, about exactly this um, and explaining what the most common cause of uh, a lump in the throat is. Um, I think when I was a few months ago, when this was in the kind of uh, revision stage, uh, I remember a patient coming in with the symptom like the day after I'd spent a whole day on this article. Oh, that's it's, handy. Yes, it's like the best <laughs> thing about the job is um, occasionally this happens yeah. and then you, you, you can really talk like you know what you're, you're talking about <laughs> makes a change <laughs> yeah and they, they did have these classic symptoms of um of, of laryn laryngopharyngeal reflux which we'll hear about in a moment uh, and it was amazing i was able to sort of explain what it was and like what to do and uh yeah it was great so <laughs> uh, sometimes it all just comes together isn't exactly, that brilliant yeah. yeah but i just so understand the feeling you're describing when something comes in and you see and can tell it's very distressing for somebody, but what they're experiencing is internal in a way that you could do like kind of a peripheral exam, but you'd really need some kind of fancy equipment and a specialist to take a look inside. And it's always really challenging um, to use your judgment and rely on evidence to guide these patients forward at the same time offering reassurance while setting them up on a pathway for further investigation. And 
if on the one hand you're trying to reassure them, then why are they getting more investigation? Or, you know, it's very difficult to try to um, kind of um, make them feel confident in the care that they're getting at the moment while knowing that there could still be something concerning and that's why they need to go for further testing or not. It's mm. it's a really tricky situation. Yeah, very challenging line to walk, I find. Not just for lump in the throat, but for so many things where we're trying mm. to balance this kind of confident reassurance with, um, you know, wanting to exclude other things. So the clip coming up is going to be about um, how to um, assess the you know, history and examination of of somebody presenting with a lump in the throat. Uh, and then we also talk a bit about the sort of cancer referral pathways and, and some of the, the issues that at least I, I find with that. Hi Tom, my name's Nick Hamilton and I'm an NIHR clinical lecturer at UCL and my interest is in ENT surgery and namely disorders of the larynx. Great. Well, thank you for, for joining us today, Nick. And um, and you're also the lead author on a, a paper that's just being published in the BNJ about, uh, well, aimed at GPs about how to diagnose people with a, a symptom of a lump in the throat. Um, so maybe if we could start there. Uh, um, sorry, I'm already kind of like, saying things that, that won't be used so that's fine uh <laughs> okay let me start again so with a symptom of a lump in the throat i mean when you're seeing a patient complaining of that symptom what, what's the main things going through your mind in terms of what could be causing that well most commonly when patients present to our clinic with a lump in the throat it tends to be due to pharyngopharyngeal reflux but obviously the key thing to exclude is that it doesn't represent a throat cancer so the sort of things going through my mind are questions I can ask to try and separate out those conditions and also what I'm looking for in my examination too. Okay. Yeah, well, well let's go on to that then. What are the, the key differentiating sort of features in the history? Well, I mean, the history is really vital and it's going through each of the symptoms and, and really understanding um, each of the symptoms. Now, one of the most common symptoms, uh, the lump in the throat, one of the key questions that you can ask is whether they notice the sensation of the lump when they swallow food, fluids, or just their saliva. Now, that last one, where it's only noticed on swallowing saliva, is very typical of laryngopharyngeal mm. reflux. A lump that is noticed when you swallow food or fluid is more in keeping or more concerning for, for, a, for a malignant cause. Yeah, and I guess that's where... As I guess most listeners will, will be very familiar with that sort of dysphagia for solids. You know, we, we, we would usually refer that in very quickly to, you know, for you to, to assess for a possible cancer. But but that's really useful then that you can ask straight away, is it, is it when it's you're swallowing food or just when you're swallowing saliva? And, and that might be reflux if it's saliva. Yeah, then that's what you tend to find is that mm. patients with reflux almost always say, you know what, I haven't really thought about it, but I actually only notice it when I swallow saliva. Okay. Are there other features in the history then? Is, it, is Are there other things that differentiate it? Well, in terms of the sensation of a, of a lump, uh, you also want to establish where in the throat it's felt. Now, often mm. with reflux, it's, it's felt centrally uh, around the, the region of the Adam's apple. Um, and often it also fluctuates. Now, 
cancers can be felt in the center of the neck, uh, but they can also be felt laterally and they tend to be fixed so the position doesn't move. In addition to that, you want to understand the other features of laryngopharyngeal reflux or indeed of cancer. A typical one is pain. Um, so with reflux, you can get a sore throat, but again, it tends to fluctuate. It tends to be intermittent. With cancer, the, the pain tends to be persistent um, uh, and, and it gets worse, not better. It also mm -hmm. can be referred up to the ears, which is where you get this concern of, of, of you have earache on one side. That can be, again, a sign of more of a cancer cause uh, of a lump in the throat rather than a okay. reflux cause. I think I remember in the article there's some of the like associated symptoms as well. Um, I can't quite, I don't think I can remember them all now, but um, so particularly at night time, um, but what are the other kind of associated symptoms that give you clues for the, the reflux cause? Yeah, so uh, again, with reflux, you get this constellation of symptoms that, that vary. Um, so in addition to the lump in the throat and sometimes a sore throat, you can also get uh, a lot of uh, a sensation of the need to throat clear very often. Um, you can get vocal hoarseness. Um, and sometimes people actually feel that they can actually feel the reflux sensation themselves and they get a bit of taste in the mouth. And again, when you look at the pattern of when these symptoms occur, in acid reflux, it tends uh, it to occur more often at night uh, when the patient is lying flat. And sometimes the patient wakes up actually coughing uh, and sometimes they can feel like their throat is very constricted because you can get something called laryngospasm. Now, all of those symptoms are very classic of laryngopharyngeal reflux. Okay. However, you can also get a, 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 ver a, a real variation in symptoms throughout the day, um, and, and it doesn't always follow a typical pattern. Okay. And just for my um, understanding, or maybe my explanation to a patient of what this you know, laryngopharyngeal reflux is, um, presumably it's just an extension, or we can explain the same way we would with gastroesophageal reflux, or... Or is my anatomy kind of <laughs> going all over the place? Uh, what, yeah, kind on? of. I mean, it's so laryngopharyngeal reflux is essentially the passage of stomach contents through the esophagus and into the throat. Hmm. Gastric esophageal reflux doesn't have that throat component to it. So that's where the difference is. And obviously this, within the stomach contents, you have acid and you also have pepsin, which are believed to be the two mediators of the symptoms. Okay. Okay, and but presumably there's the similar risk factors and sort of lifestyle factors uh, that 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 you might we might be more kind of familiar or used to using with with gastroesophageal reflux. Yeah, they do parallel each other quite well, and about a third of patients with laryngopharyngeal reflux will also have gastric symptoms as well. Yeah. So I want to ask you about the the cancer guidelines. I mean, there's of course we've got our nights. Uh, we call them so two-week wait guidelines and then the, the more local guidelines but um because i read these and i get a bit sort of uncomfortable with them um tell, tell us more about them and and whether you think they're they're, they're useful <laughs> so there are lots of different guidelines out there the nice guidelines um uh, are fairly uh, restricted uh, they really just comment on the symptom of unexplained hoarseness and then unexplained lump in the neck uh, when it's when you're concerned about throat cancer. Regional guidelines tend to go a bit further, and they talk about other things, um, such as persisting pain, problems with swallowing. But the regional guidelines actually do vary depending on what region you're in. Um, for instance, Pan-London guidelines, um, they suggest a referral if there's a persisting hoarseness uh, uh, 
that, that in somebody that's over 40 uh, for longer than for the longer than three weeks whereas uh, other guidelines throughout the country suggest it should be six weeks yeah yeah and i think another one on the, on the pan london one was persistent ear pain uh, for three weeks as well and it's sorry is that over in somebody over the age of 40 or, or just for anybody i think it might be for anybody with persistent ear pain yeah, so the persistent ear pain for, for, for over four weeks and somebody over 40 years within the London guidelines. Um, but to be honest, uh, persistent unilateral ear pain with normal clinical findings isn't something that should be ignored. Mm. And, and it, isn't, it is possible that a patient can have a throat cancer and their mm. only symptom is unilateral ear pain that persists. Interesting. I mean, I, I mean maybe this is just highlighting area of... of where I just completely ignorant and, and, and need to get better in my, my practice. But um, I suppose that will come as a surprise. I, I, I suspect for a lot of lot of GPs and listeners thinking of the patient who's who's got ear pain, they might have had it for six months or, or a long time. Would you like us to refer all of those patients to you uh, for a suspected uh, laryngeal cancer? Well, I think you need to obviously take it on a case-by-case <laughs> basis. Um, now, uh, when we say persisting, we mean pain that doesn't get better. So a lot of the time, say if the patient had temporary mandibular joint dysfunction, you can get ear pain without any clinical findings. But that pain tends to come and go and has, has variation throughout the day, if not the week or the month. Whereas with, with a cancer type of pain, it tends to come on and it doesn't get better. It just gets progressively worse. Mm-hmm. So, so in, and to answer your question about whether we'd like to see them in clinic, I think the answer would be yes, we would. And um, we very happy to see patients find that they don't have cancer and give them that reassurance as to the other the other way around where a patient has a delayed referral and it turns out that the treatment is either much yeah. more involved or not possible yeah i mean that, that's interesting to talk to you about this because we yeah I think we don't have that many conversations with you know with the with specialists who we're referring to particularly on the, the sort of two-week wait uh, guidance and um it's easy for us to, I think, to feel that we're doing it wrong and not referring enough. And, you know, we occasionally get a letter back saying, you know, it was, this was an inappropriate referral and, and those things tend to stick. Whereas um, we probably don't realise when, when you're happy with our referrals. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think generally, you know, when we do, when we, uh, when we were in a two-week clinic, you know, the expectation is that we could go through a whole clinic without seeing a single cancer diagnosis. And that, that isn't a bad thing. You know, these clinics are not designed uh, for, for referring uh, clear cases of cancer. They're more of a screening uh, exercise. Mm. Uh, if someone has a concern, or indeed, if there is just a possibility that it may represent a cancer, then they should be seen and investigated by, by a specialist in that area. Okay. I think the last thing that I want to, to talk to you about is... Um, you know, those those people who um, we might refer to you for that reason, really, no, knowing really that there's a very low probability that they have a cancer um, and, okay, they, they might have reflux, maybe we've sort of <laughs> overlooked that diagnosis. But, I mean, often my suspicion is that the sort of anxiety and worry is uh, is the, the, the sort of underlying factor that, that would be most helpful to address, perhaps put it that way. Um what do you do to, to sort of identify those patients and sort of help those in, in your clinic? Yeah, I think, I think it is very important to, to think about these, these issues. Uh, and one of the things you can do is obviously ask the patient what they're worried about. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, if it's, say, a routine referral to an ENT clinic for, for, for a globus-type sensation rather than a head and neck cancer referral, sometimes there is an underlying worry about cancer which you can address within the clinic. Um, mm. And often performing the investigation uh, and actually examining the inside of the throat with, a, with an endoscope it provides some reassurance to the patient. But, but I think you're right that, that you know, the, the, the question of anxiety should certainly be considered and, and discussed within clinic. I think I think another useful uh, intervention is to is patient information sheets, and I'm very keen on this because often when you when you do describe acid reflux to a patient, it can be a bit bewildering, and sometimes they don't mm. believe it's a thing. Mm. Um, whereas if you can provide an information sheet and direct a patient on the information sheet to websites, you know patients can see uh, through forums uh, other patients which are suffering from the same condition. Mm. And, uh, you know, in my experience, I feel that that provides that kind of reassurance that that, 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 that it is a, an actual condition that they have and it helps them to gain some control over it. So, yeah, did, did you find that useful? I did, yeah, it was very useful. I think anything where, any tips on differentiating features, I think is always so helpful. Mm. I am now rather panicked about whether I've been diagnosing enough or suspecting um, cancer in people with persistent ear pain. Uh, mm. So, but I'm, I'm glad you, you spoke for many GPs there, Tom, and saying that, you know, I felt I felt I felt um, validated by what you said. Oh, good. Well, I thought I should come clean, and and um, and in doing so, that might be useful. <laughs> but uh, but really interesting. It's so hard, yeah, and, and then good to get that kind of additional sort of clarity on on when you you should be worried. So very helpful interview. I thought. Um, I do still feel that that next bit is the bit that I struggle with. So say mm. you know you you've done your investigations, you've um, told the patient you know there's nothing really sinister or worrying going on but might be a bit of reflux and we'll try some treatments I I feel like I've been in the position so often where things aren't really making a difference and um and you you it I just find that really uh it's hard to know what to do in that case in those Mm -hmm. instances where reassurance doesn't actually change the the sensation that the patient is experiencing Mm -hmm. so that that's still I think my struggle yeah and I I think um I think that he was great about recognizing that as well right like especially at the end that you know I'm not sure that an information sheet necessarily solves that for patients but certainly thinking about connecting them with the community of people who are experiencing the same thing as a way to validate, mm-hmm. like, look, we believe you. Yeah. We know what you're going through mm-hmm. can be extremely distressing. Here's a whole group of other people who are struggling with the same thing. Um, it's yeah. real. It's a thing. And here are some things that we can try to help you with or try to offer you. Um I thought that was really yeah. good. And and then, you know, the reminder to turn our internal anxiety about whether this whether the patient with Globus has cancer back on them to ask them what are you worried about, right? Because it could be our own anxiety about whether they have cancer that's prompting us to 
try to figure out what the patient mm. is thinking and actually just asking them, well, what are you most worried about in this scenario? And it might be something completely different. That's such a good point, Jenny, yeah. that, um, you know, how often it's our own, you know, the, the amount of projection that can happen sometimes. I think particularly, you know, what I was just talking about with, you know, wanting to be able to reassure someone and leave them feeling satisfied by what you've done. And so much of that, I think, is about well, you know, this kind of imperative that I think I feel a lot and I, I think other clinicians do too, that you feel you have to do something or or hand mm. over a prescription mm. or, you know, give some sort of intervention when actually that kind of um, recognition, validation, empathy, that's the kind of key, key, key part yeah. of it too. It's like um, the doctor kept going about cancer, but I just want to stop waking <laughs> yeah. up at night. With a... <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the, the article, by the way, is very good. Uh, and there's some more bits in there which people um, can take a look at. But I, f- I feel I should say that the treatment they recommend is um, slightly different from, from GORD. Um, so three months PPI um, is is the standard for, for this as opposed to, you know, maybe one month uh, in, in with dyspepsia or the, your H. pylori testing. And um, and they sort of talk a lot about alginates as well as a sort of additional thing in those with the more severe symptoms which aren't fully responding to the PPI it's a there's it can add um add your alginate liquid as, as well so yeah uh, that's quite useful yeah not to be cynical but I remember <laughs> I remember doing when I did my ENT rotation uh there's a lot of Gaviscon branded uh, freebies around. Oh, right. I think and I think a lot oh. of Gaviscon <laughs> giving out as well in in clinics so yeah <laughs> but I'm sure it's worth trying <laughs> <laughs> it's our new sponsor, isn't it? Gaviscon. Yeah, yeah. Please send us some Gaviscon as your free plug. <laughs> um, on the cancer diagnosis or the cancer referral thing, um, I, I should just pick up on that again because I've got the London, the Pan London suspected cancer referral guide here, uh, and Nick there was talking. Um, I think he sort of qualifying the recommendation in the guidance, which if I read it out, is over forty years old with over three weeks of otalgia or. Um, he was talking about it being so persistent and unexplained and um, I, I thought I should mention because I, I think we do look at these and we, we really do use these as like scripture don't we like it's very hard to veer away from the, the written guidance because you know we, we worry like you say about missing mm. a cancer um, so I wonder if those guidance could be a bit more clear about it you know even adding in that word unexplained or persistent yeah. uh, you know it, it, um, it would be helpful to for it to be a bit more um, forgiving, perhaps. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and also, particularly, I think, as as you say, we use these as, as you know, they're our gospel. And um, mm. I think for... But, they're, but with good reason as well. I think we're sort of balancing so many different things in our head or trying to hold so many different things in our head that actually having something you can refer to to you know uh not not miss a cancer um is really useful and so yeah that clarity is really helpful i think trying to make them as sort of um, primary care friendly as possible um and is there prevalence data or any kind of positive predictive value for that constellation of symptoms um i'm just thinking about how nick mentioned that you could go an entire specialist clinic without seeing a single cancer diagnosis and for us to keep in mind that still common things are common um even with people who have um this symptom 
It's interesting. I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if you do, Tom. I was just thinking that because it's not in the NICE guidelines, he said in the interview. Mm. And I know NICE, do you remember the NICE threshold for um, their symptoms was lowered from a positive predictive value of five to three a few years ago? And so I'm guessing... Yeah. Percent, oh, yeah, so, yeah, per- 3%, yeah, sorry, 5% to 3%. And I'm guessing mm. uh, that um, it doesn't it doesn't even meet that or it doesn't meet that mm. for it not to be in nice it must be something yeah. higher than yeah it's lower than the that, nice guidelines on, only discuss um voice hoarseness and um a lump in the throat an actual mm-hmm. physical lump and of course we're talking about mm-hmm. the sensation and you know, the symptom of a lump mm-hmm. in the throat rather than actually a palpable lump so yeah we've got this big gap there which the local guidance guidelines are filling in but and also in, in different ways in different parts of the country and, and probably across the world which uh yeah, I guess mm-hmm. speaks volumes maybe about the uncertainty mm. here. So I suppose a lot of the time, in my experience at least, um, when when you have ruled out the cancer, you may, you might have treated the reflux, but there's still a you know, anxiety for some people, sadly, that sort of comes back quite quickly, whether it's about that symptom or, or something different. Um, and another way, I suppose, that the, that anxiety can manifest is or have an impact is on um, actually swallowing things like medication and, and you know, you've ruled out the, the, the cancer, but still they're having a difficulty and might be swallowing liquids, food. Um, and uh, and I guess that brings us on, Jenny, to, to the second interview, which um, which was another article that you've been working on uh, and with some authors from that. Yeah, so one of the articles that I commissioned for the education section This year was about helping children to swallow tablets or capsules. So, um, and this, uh, this unfortunately came from personal experience. You know when the universe just delivers you a couple of cases with the same problem in a short period of time and... Particularly in the first one, you have no idea what you're doing. And then by the third, that's kind of in this cluster. You're like, right, I got this. I know how to do this. Well, I had um, I had kind of a cluster of patients coming in with this problem. And then my own son um, who needed to take some medication and was too young to swallow pills and was refusing an alternative um, liquid form. And so I worked with these authors on a, on a paper about um, helping children take pills, um, wanting to understand whether there are any strategies in the short term. But um, as you'll hear from the interview I did with the authors of the piece, anxiety also contributes to not only children, but also adults struggling to swallow pills. And that interview is coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medical legal advice, including 24 seven in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. 
we also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now we'll go back to Jenny's interview. My name is Dion Dersch-Mills and I am what's called the clinical practice leader for pharmacy um, for pediatrics and neonatology with Alberta Health Services. And I'm based out of the Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary. Great. And we're also joined by Dr. Bonnie Kaplan. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself as well? My name is Bonnie Kaplan. I'm a semi-retired research psychologist, professor emerita from the Faculty of Medicine, Cumming School of Medicine at University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I worked for many, many years at Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute and became interested in pill swallowing when I was studying nutrients, which are often in large capsules. And I had no idea that people had difficulty swallowing pills. And so that's why I decided to study it. If someone had asked me, don't you know, you know, like, I don't know, 20 years ago, don't you know some kids can't swallow pills? I think I would have said, oh, no, everybody can swallow pills. They're just being oppositional. I mean, I think I would have assumed they just weren't cooperative. They didn't want to take it or whatever. And so for me, it was a bit of a breakthrough moment when I was interviewing a a mother and son to be in a study. And again, it was large capsules is really what I've worked with most because that's what holds minerals and vitamins. And that's what I've studied with respect to brain and mental health. Mm -hmm. And this little boy of about nine years old sat there and kept putting the capsule in his mouth and then it would come out of his mouth and little quiet, very quietly tears started coming down his cheeks as he kept putting it in and it would come back out. And his mother was very appropriate, encouraging him, but not pressuring or anything there was I mean it should have worked right and I thought what (laughs) doesn't this work so I asked one of my students to look into the literature at that time and find out how do you help a child who can't swallow pills that Mm. child could not be my research Mm. and I was kind of shocked when I looked at the literature for example someone literally published uh, a case where it took 57 hours sessions with professionals to shape and encourage this and positively reinforce a child to swallow a pill i think they i mean that's almost browbeating and to call that a success i mean if that's what we had to go through then it's completely impossible for in terms of clinical resources to provide that many hours of of intervention for a child the same student roberta steiger is her name Um, also looked at some of the um, endoscopic research, and she could find only one that was relevant. But she found that when these adults in this particular study swallowed with their head to the side, the upper esophageal sphincter stayed open a few milliseconds longer and opened a little bit wider. And it was 
statistically meaningful and we basically we wondered if it was clinically meaningful could we use that to teach people to swallow pills and from that to make a long story short we did four studies um, first starting with people adults who could swallow pills and then children who could swallow pills and then moving on to clinical samples we and so what we ended up with was a training video which is on the internet and cited in our article mm -hmm. which is very child oriented although you should see the the articles i the letters that i get from you know 54 year old lawyers <laughs> and, and 45 year old ministers who say i've never been able to swallow pills and now i can do it and they tried off-center swallowing. Mm -hmm. So what we t teach in a nutshell is to practice with something like a hard candy with your head up, down, left, right, and center, and do that for two weeks. And it's amazing how many people do well with it. I wonder if you can say more about kind of stress management when it comes to swallowing um, pills or tablets or, or what else um, you've observed with respect to the impact of anxiety on um, swallowing medications and supplements. Right. Um, we, yeah, we have seen it certainly when we had one little boy who was in our, uh, our fourth study, I think, who himself, he had been through some kinds of stress management training and he himself applied that and told us then that that's what he was doing. He was doing some deep breathing before he would do his practice Aww. every night. Six years old, you know, it was really kind of amazing. Um, but we also uh, do a little bit with logic. And um, even young children, if you show them the size of a Tic Tac, say, against the size of their esophagus, the diameter of their esophagus, on a, just a drawing on a piece of paper is what we used. And then ask them, sometimes we'd ask them like, uh, what's the biggest thing you swallow, do you think? And sometimes it's so I don't chew my carrots completely or maybe a piece of hot dog or something. And, and compare the Tic Tac to that. I, I don't think you can overcome the problem with that kind of rational thinking. But I think you can make them relax. And we also teach them about soft tissue. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things in the training video is where I stick my tongue in my cheek, you know, and mm -hmm. stick out my cheek and say, you know, that's why you can swallow pills even wider than your throat, right? Because it's soft tissue, it can expand and relax. And so we give them a lot of visuals like that. Um, but I, that one boy I thought was extremely clever to do that. And certainly parents could do that. Deanne, can you talk a little bit, when kids can't swallow pills, when they don't have the oral coordination yet, what are the options in terms of giving them um, medicines or supplements? Sure. Yeah. So, um, um, of course, when kids can't swallow tablets or capsules, we need to, we usually use an oral liquid. Uh, but sometimes even when kids can swallow tablets and capsules, we have to use an oral liquid because they need a, a dose that's too small to get with the tab. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, usually we're going to, to something like an oral liquid. Um, which uh, in lots of cases um, works really well, but in lots of cases it, it won't work. Um, one of the, I guess, the more common issues with that, that that we immediately think about is palatability. So sometimes they taste okay. Actually, usually paracetamol doesn't taste too bad, but um, everyone has their own tastes, I guess. Um, but lots of oral liquids um, 
really don't taste great. And so that's kind of the common one that that parents think about. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, oral liquids sometimes will have additives or things in them that we don't necessarily want to give our kids. Um, alcohol, for instance, is used in some oral liquids, certain coloring agents, preservatives that maybe we'd mm-hmm. like to avoid if we can. Um, and then sometimes, this is probably the, one of the bigger issues in my mind, is that there just isn't an oral liquid, that the drug manufacturers um, either can't or won't um, research a, a, an oral liquid preparation. And so usually a, a pharmacist will have to do some sort of manipulation of that, uh, the oral solid, if it comes as a tablet or a capsule, and make that into an oral liquid in some way. And we call that compounding, usually. Um, But of course, anytime you're manipulating a drug product, you could make mistakes. Um, Sometimes one pharmacy will use one concentration, another pharmacy makes it slightly differently, and it's a different concentration, and that can be confusing for parents and lead to errors. Mm. Um, And in most jurisdictions, um, pharmacies that do that kind of um, manipulation or compounding have to have a special uh, license and meet certain requirements. And so sometimes it's hard for families even to find a pharmacy that will will do that for them. Um, all of the issues that you raise are things that we typically don't even think about. Um, we're grateful to have pharmacists we work with to think about these issues and to help find alternatives. I think when a physician is prescribing a medication um, at a dose that won't work with the usual oral solids or for a child who can't swallow um, oral solids yet, um, if they're not familiar with with the use of that agent in those scenarios, I think they should feel comfortable phoning um, a pharmacy or pharmacist mm. and, and having a conversation with them about what's available. Um, having said that, you know it's it's only fair to say that community pharmacists mostly treat adults, and so they're not always going to be familiar with the options for pediatric patients. So, um, if that if that's a, the scenario, um, sometimes pharmacist working at a pediatric hospital, if there's one nearby, can have some some thoughts to add on that. But um, having said that, um, if we're using an oral liquid and we're worried about palatability, uh, there's lots of little tips and tricks that families can try. Uh, Some of the ones that I think of off the top of my head um, are giving the child like a frozen treat right before Mm -hmm. they take the medication. Um, And then often that will numb their mouth uh, just enough so that they don't taste it so much. It's also a bit of an incentive um, for kids that really like frozen treats. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, um, there's, uh, some kids might prefer to have a bit of a chaser. So you give their medicine and then they get some tasty treat. Mm-hmm. Uh, afterwards, um, you know, syrup or jam. Some kids with more discerning tastes might like uh, blue cheese or something that's really strong and kind of gets rid of, I know that's probably my, my weird children. <laughs> Um, what's the other thing I was going to mention? Uh, if there's older kids, um, you know, sort of maybe in that five or six, seven range where, where they're just sort of learning and they want to have control, um, you know, getting children to decide, okay, do you want to take it out of the oral syringe or would you rather me measure it and put it into this cool alligator spoon? Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, do you want to take it before your lunch or after at least giving them a bit of control over it? Sometimes that can help. Um, I guess another classic thing is is crushing a tablet um, Mm -hmm. or emptying a capsule. Now, that only works if you can measure the dose in a tablet or a part tablet or Mm -hmm. capsule. 
uh, but when that happens, um, you can mix it in, you know, whatever the kid likes, jam, um, like a like a chocolatey spread, anything that they really, really love. Uh, the caveat I'll give with that is don't do that too far ahead. Um, we certainly don't know if a drug is stable mm -hmm. in peanut butter, <laughs> uh, let alone saline. So um, uh -huh. I always just remind parents, just do that just ahead of time. Um, so that we don't have to worry about stability and likewise um, don't put it in you know a full glass of milk or a full glass of juice just put it in a small amount so that um, you can be sure the child can drink all of it or eat all of it and not miss any of their dose that is so helpful that's so helpful um, my patient who had dengue told me that her the solution she finally figured out to give her daughter paracetamol was um buying her one of those sweetened yogurt smoothies, um, which came in the small bottle because she'd never had them before. And so she didn't know what the taste was. So then when she sprinkled um, these little granules, acetaminophen granules um, on the smoothie, it was okay on the yogurt, but she had tried mixing it into one of her favorite drinks and her daughter could immediately tell the difference in the taste. And then the whole thing was rejected. Yeah, it's a, and some of the tastes can be fairly pervasive. Um, and they, they have an aftertaste. I can't deny that. <laughs> oh, so that was so helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what do you guys do when parents are asking for advice about, uh, about how to give their children medication? Because I feel like I don't want to say, well, you know, often it's you know they're like oh I have to really hold down my child and it just you know it just sounds like such a fraught situation so that, there's loads of really helpful tips in there yeah I, I do think I'm pretty good at, on this and and hopefully be a bit better now um one thing I, I've never known is that at what age can a child go from the liquid to the tablet and um I guess I'm sort of ask the parents you know can they take tablets but um that's really interesting that actually they probably it's probably younger than I, I thought so that was one of the questions that I had when when I was mm. um, speaking with these authors. And the point that they made to me was that um, there is no really clear identifiable age when children can start. It, it just varies um, widely um, depending on the child, depending on um, how much medication they need to take or are expected to take. Um, and similarly, the um, head positioning kind of learning that um, Dr. Kaplan was describing also is is something that she described as having a really um, variable amount of time that's required to learn. So their program does the head position training for two weeks, but she said some people can pick it up right away just within a couple sessions. So it required me to kind of change my thinking like, oh, okay, well, maybe for kids who do need a longer course of medicine, teaching them to swallow pills is in fact an option instead of racking your brain at trying to find an alternative, which um, as Dion was discussing can be really challenging for a lot of reasons. Yeah. I think I'm probably a bit too quick to go, oh, okay, then fine. Well, well, we'll just find a, yeah, the oral suspension or, um, and then you do the, the, hopefully I haven't done it for a few years, but the rookie error, Navjot, I wonder if you've done this, where 
you click on the liquid one and it's actually a special. And I know. Then, you know, weeks later you get told it costs like 500 yeah, they, pounds Yeah, or, or they something. had to go to like five different pharmacies to try and get it. Yeah, you always find out in retrospect. Yeah, no, totally. And I think, I mean, it's so helpful to have something that sounds relatively straightforward. There's a video that you can kind of, um, you know, something easy to convey in a consultation. I, I mean, that happens so rarely where you've got like an easy option um, to, you know, uh, or potential solution. So that's really helpful to know. So so with this sort of head moving thing that it, so you, you're just practicing moving your head in different positions while so, trying to swallow pills or? So it's all in the video, but very quickly, uh, you start with small candies and you practice trying to swallow them, turning your head to the right, to the left, looking up, looking down, and then in the center. The point being that conventionally we're all taught to just look straight on and swallow, but actually mm. your esophagus opens a little bit when you turn your head um, to, to different positions. And so it might actually physically be easier, but also may relieve some of that anxiety if you are trying it in a new way or with mm. candies or if someone has explained to you that, oh, but your throat is actually wider now in this way. And so that was kind of um, the rationale. Yeah. And then you build up to sort of larger and larger objects, to sort of peas and grapes and... Grape. <laughs> is that oh how it works? <laughs> no, no, not quite that big. You someone's <laughs> airway. Yeah. Help stop <laughs> um, I hope, I'm so pleased that that little boy that um, she described at the beginning of the interview found like, just that was such an evocative picture of like tears, like silently Luke. rolling down his cheek. It's like, oh God. But I'm so happy they, yeah. they found a way forward for him and and hopefully we can too for our yeah. patients. Yeah, I can tell you that the tears that my child cried when I needed to give the medicine <laughs> were not silent. <laughs> it was awful. I mean, and, and you know, the whole, so... It's a long story, but he had dysentery, oh. right? Like we we have been living in Cambodia. He had amoebiasis. And so um, both my kids had bloody diarrhea. And um, the treatment is, it, the, the only treatment we could access is uh, combined metronidazole with um, another medication, but it's a tablet and it's bitter, mm. awful, awful medicine, which if, if you're an adult that can swallow tablets, okay, you don't really taste it. It's fine. Um, and with my oldest, he was a champ and I could cut the tablet and like pop it in the back of his throat, which I later learned you're not supposed to do. But anyway, he, he learned how to swallow from that exercise, but my youngest couldn't. So we were grinding up these bitter tablets, mixing it with honey, tried with jam, tried with maple syrup, tried with I mean, and it was, and nothing could disguise the taste. And it was just, I, it was one of those moments where, you know, three times a day we would walk over to him with this syringe of this solution. And what kind of psychological trauma are you inflicting on your child? So I think, yeah, I mean, he's probably going to suffer from pill swallowing anxiety going forward. And that lump in the throat that he's going to have for his whole life. Well, exactly. Amazing that you commissioned an article, though, out of this and uh, have helped so many people through your own experience. (laughs) 
Well, if it it well, it was certainly helpful <laughs> to understand um, some of the strategies for giving medicines to children, and it did also make me wonder. You know, should actually talking to parents about giving medicines to their children be a more regular mm-hmm. part of my own preventive guidance? Mm-hmm. Right. So apart from the whole question of can they swallow pills. How are you planning to give this medicine? Do you know Mm -hmm. how to measure it? Will your children accept this form? It's just something I never take Mm. the time or didn't take the time to talk about before, but now I do. So we're coming to the end of this episode of Deep Breath In. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if so, please do rate us on your podcast app. Uh, we'd love to hear from some of our listeners. Um, we've got an email address, practice at bmj.com, if you'd like to get in touch. Or you could uh, use the hashtag deep breath in. Thanks to Dion, Bonnie and Nick. And thank you to Navjoit. See you next time. Thanks to our <laughs> uh, has got the giggles. Uh, and see you next time, Jenny. Thanks, Tom. See you later. I'm sorry. (laughs) For today's deep breath out, I've managed to get away to the Cornish countryside for some pre-lockdown relaxation. Now, this is the part of the podcast where we leave you with some relaxing sounds or something to remind you of the things that keep you afloat during these difficult times. To submit your own suggestion, please email practice at bmj.com. Now I'll leave you with the sound of the pigs at Tredefic Farm in Cornwall. <laughs> <laughs>